Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, yo, happy holiday season. Welcome to the TMBA pod. Bossman, you're back from your minor paternity leave, by the way. Welcome back to the Jingle party. bells. Yeah, <laughs> jingle bells. Here we are. Are you grumpy or what? <laughs> Uh, no, it's just the paternity thing. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't end. That's what I'm realizing. For a future episode, <laughs> it's just here to stay. We're in reflective mood here at the pod. <laughs> we thought it would be cool for this holiday season to draw on some of this year's best episodes to reflect the seven stages of entrepreneurship, the stages that you might encounter on your journey. But let's be honest, this is just a trope so that we can recall some of the coolest quotes from the last 12 months here on the pod. Yeah, Dan, we've had some amazing guests this year. Some of the best I think we've ever had. Up in our guest game. That's what I think is going on around here. Thank you, Jane, producer Jane. (laughs) And so why not bring them back? So the first stage, Ian, of the entrepreneurial journey is the Saturday morning side hustle. I think we can all relate to the Saturday morning side hustle, get off of that J-O-B, And you want to spend the next day doing a little something for yourself, building something that can be your asset. Well, Tommy Griffith talked about that this year when he was a speaker at our annual event in Bangkok. He started his online teaching platform, ClickMinded, by actually teaching SEO himself on the side, running classes on the weekend while working full-time at PayPal, a classic Saturday morning side hustle. I didn't have a ton of money and I did a rev share with the co-working spaces. So instead of like booking a co-working space in advance and being really stressed about filling it, I'd say, hey, let me do a revenue share with you. But what it meant was that like four or five person classes were pretty good. One person classes were terrible. There was this moment where I was still in a lot of debt, still trying to work it off, still trying to get feedback on the class. And someone emailed me. It was like my second or third class. So this guy emails me. And his name is Philip Liu. He's this 55-year-old Chinese dude. And he's like, I would love to learn SEO, but I can only, I'm only in town one day. And it turns out it was March 17th. It was St. Patrick's Day, also my 26th birthday. And I'm sitting there, I'm thinking about it. It's, like, oh, it's my 26th birthday. It's $500. Fine, I'm in. I got, I've got so much debt. Like, I got to get through this. I'm in. Then he asked for a promo code. I'm like, God damn it. Then... After I really crunched the numbers, it was awful. The revenue share on the co-working space was 50%. You know, I would buy a bunch of printed materials. I would buy the guy lunch. You know, I did a lot of work leading up to it. And so I'm sitting there on my birthday, St. Patrick's Day. There's like drunk people coming up on the window, like knocking with like green leprechaun hats, like having the best day of their life. And it's me and Philip Lou sitting in this tiny dark room talking about meta descriptions. <laughs> And I did out the math and I was making about $12 an hour teaching this guy. And San Francisco minimum wage was $13 an hour. So it was not good. You did have problems and was with your friends. Can you talk me through some of, first off, what the problem scope was? Yeah, I was very motivated in 
getting out of debt, super motivated and building something big. By definition, anyone who builds a company is a little weird. It's not normal. And if you build a big company, that's even weirder, right? So like by definition, you're not normal. And by definition, you can't have normal inputs to get these abnormal outputs. I mean, I had roommates that I liked a lot. They'd say like, it's so awesome what you're doing. I'm going to do that too. And then they like go and they're like blacked out at the bar, right? <laughs> or like Sunday football or you know, Taco Tuesdays. Like when you try and be objective about it and you look back, it's like, hey, I'm going to do everything everyone else does all the time and then hope that I build something magical and different by a complete act of God, right? So like I had a lot of trouble with trying to build this and maintain a lot of friendships. I'd piss my friends off. Were they really pissed? Tell me about that. I think I made people mad. Like the one-year-old birthday parties. You have to say no to the one-year-old birthday parties. It's, it sounds horrible, but like, especially in San Francisco, it's just constant. It's my friend's birthday. There's a mini golf thing. We're going to the park. Like, it's just relentless. And these are, these are like ivory tower problems, right? Like, oh, poor me, I have to say no to, to a picnic, right? <laughs> but you have to go against that. And so I would lie a lot. I would say I was going out when I wasn't, or I would say the product wasn't doing as well when it was. It was really lonely for a little while. It was such a breath of fresh air to meet other people that had done that. Or like, I kind of gave a talk recently at Noah's SumoCon conference. And like I said, some of these things and just meeting other people that were building like similar sized businesses and saying that they had to bail on a lot of social commitments in order to get there. I was like very kind of mad at myself for, but then realized like most people seem to wrestle with that on the way. And it was a little bit more reassuring, I guess. So let's pick up where Tommy left off there in the second stage of entrepreneurship. And that's to leave town, even if it's just metaphorically, and meet your people. Get with your community. If our voices in your earbuds is the closest that you've come in 2017 to encountering people that are supportive of those changes that you're trying to make, that the goals that you're going after, that's got to be something you address in 2018. It's the holidays, Dan, I think it's a great opportunity to ditch your friends and your family. <laughs> right? I mean, what better season? Tis the time of year. Yeah, I'm not going to expand on that at all. I'm just going <laughs> to... But it is this idea of who are the people that are going to support? What are the big changes you're trying to make in your life or your business? And that's why so many entrepreneurs, listeners of this show, head out to immersive communities, places like Chiang Mai or Medellin or Ho Chi Minh City or Lisbon. But this could be just going to a conference. You know, It could be going to a retreat. It could be pulling together a mastermind in your own backyard, inviting people to your home if you don't have the flexibility to travel. It was one of these immersive communities, Ian, in the city of Davao in the South Philippines that provided the stage for a chance encounter between Andrew Brown and James Andrews, who, after an inauspicious start, eventually went into business together. Yeah, so I met Andy. He's from Ireland. He'd been living in China for three years, trying to do some business there, which didn't go so well, he said. so. Tell me a little bit about that interaction. I originally thought that he was a drunk, epic failure. What is he doing with his life? Just seemed like backpacker traveling around. He was working for his family's business at the time after he'd failed to do some business in China. 
My impression here was at the beginning, this friendship didn't sound like it had the makings of a dynamic and professional and potentially life-changing business partnership. We were just hanging out every weekend. I was drinking a lot back then, so I was going out partying with him every weekend, sometimes during the week as well. So what were your favorite bars at the time? Well, there's only two clubs. And speaking of my impressions of Devao, oh man, that was the first time I went into that nightclub. Not Echelon, the other one. I just couldn't believe it. It was worse than the worst nightclub in my tiny little village in Ireland. It looks like a, you know, a country disco is what, what we'd call it back in Ireland. So it's like a dark little hole in the ground and kind of smelly. Obviously the usual bad music, but that's kind of common across Asia. So no, no surprise there. Nothing nice about it. Like, there's no nice seats. There's really cheap booze. So that's a bonus. The only reason we're going out is to meet girls, really. That's just, that was it for singles. So that's, that's the only reason we were going there. Are you guys talking much about business during this time frame at all? Nah, not really. Not much. Just girls? Yeah, I think so. But what started out as a couple guys hanging out at a bar grew the seeds of an eventually successful business, a software program for split testing product listings on Amazon. It was just an idea. And I was going to start doing it. And I just told him, I mean, he's a mate, right? I'm not going to think he's going to steal it on me or anything like that. I wasn't thinking he was going to want to partner with me. It was really just like part of the conversation. Like, what are you up to, man? What are you doing? Yeah, okay, I'm doing this now. And then I think what James did was he spoke to an Amazon seller. That Amazon seller said, oh, that's a really good idea. That's brilliant. No one else is doing it. And then James came back to me and said, do you want, do you want to partner then? And did you guys have any negotiations in terms of equity or anything like that? We just mutually agreed 50-50 was the best thing to do. Uh, how long did it take? It took quite a long time, actually. It's a very difficult thing to do. So it took a good two months to build. Tell me about the day that you released it. We released it, and then the whole thing broke. It was terrible. Actually, it was a nightmare for me. And so we got a bunch of people signing up very quickly. And problems with my code, basically. Oh, it was really, really stressful. Well, I was in Chiang Mai, and James was in the Philippines. And I was basically just... God, I think I was smoking at the time. I was chain smoking, basically. I was so stressed, just sitting on the balcony, trying to taking breaks and then going back in and trying to figure out what was going wrong. So like customers emailing you or are you just like sitting with some status screen, like watching everything break? James builds the actual website. And what I was building was the code that talks to Amazon and does the updates and all this kind of stuff. That stuff happens on like on a timing. And every day at midnight on Amazon time, all the updates would happen. And then I go in and go, okay, why didn't this work? Why do they fail? And then the emails would come in and they'd be like, oh, this is broken. That is broken. And I'm like, oh, God. So you'd have these like 24-hour cycles. Yes, exactly. Every day I'd be like, okay, here it comes again. The update's coming again. <laughs> I was telling James, like, we have to just, you know, stop signing people up. Let's just slow the whole thing down and try and fix things. And James was like, nope, nope, we've launched now. <laughs> Full steam ahead. He was correct, actually, because we did, we, you know, I didn't cause any damage to anybody. Most of the issues were actually in validating the updates. So stuff like that. It was actually fine in the end. We just kept going and ironed all the bugs in. All right. So, Ian, the first stage is that Saturday morning side hustle. Then you start to find your community in the second stage, people that can support you in the third stage. At some point, you can have all the good ideas in the world, but you got to find a way to be super productive. You got to go to work. Yeah. You got to put the pedal down. All of a sudden, you're moving from this mindset where you know most of us grow up as consumers. You know, you're following the lead of others. You're doing what your boss tells you. And now all of a sudden, you have a, an idea, people supporting you. And you got to find a way to get rubber to the road and time on your idea. And who do we know that does this best? We don't have to go very far. Taylor Pearson, somebody who's an expert at developing productive habits. Oh, 
the first strategy, let's recap. The first strategy is... 90-day sprints. Second? Plan with goals, build with habits. And the third strategy we're going to introduce... Is rocks, pebbles, sand. The story is there's a professor, he's standing in front of his classroom, and he's got a mason jar that he's holding in his hand. And on the table, there's a jar of pebbles, a jar of rocks, and a jar of sand. And so he says what most people do is first they fill up their lives with all the little things, and he pours some of the sand into the jar, right? So this is kind of like administrative stuff you have to do, your accountant's bothering you, and you got to fill out this form, and you got to get your logo done. Your investor wants an email about the performance of the company. You promised you were going to call back John. You got to give John a call. And so you put that into your yeah, week. You got a Tinder date on Saturday night. That's a definitely a pebble. Essential. Not- <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of put in all what our guy kind of like this like managerial work, right? Stuff that you're working not on the business, but you're working in the business. Kind of stuff to just keep operations going. And you get to the end of this, you put in all these little tasks, these little pieces of sand. You kind of put in all this managerial pebbles and you've got these rocks these big important things that are going to move the company forward rock might be drafting a policy document creating a process for recognizing and caring for your top five percent of your customers or writing a blog post if you're doing content marketing for your business Right. The Sam Carpenter, author of Work the System, his metaphor is you have firefighters and fire prevention specialists, right? So the pebbles and the sand are the firefighting, right? You're just dealing with all the stuff that's coming up and you're just putting down putting down the fires. So you never spend any time doing fire prevention, right? Actually putting in place the policies or putting in place the systems that are prevent these fires from keep coming up. And so what you do is you just end up putting out these fires and putting out these same types of fires, over and over because that's what your that's what your calendar fills up with. So you figure out your habit rocks and you put those in first, right? When you're planning out your week. Let's talk about some of the ways that you do this. So the biggest one for me is writing. That's kind of like my that's my rock habit that's working. That's how you make your money, right? That's how I make my money. But it's long term, right? You know, over a, a two year time frame. Oh, and that's why the habit part of it is so important, particularly for high value business models. Because yeah, if you're selling consultative services, you can be all blazing fire and pay the rent. But if you want to build something that's meaningful, you got to instill that habit where you're building value on a day-to-day basis that other people can't constantly obstruct your ability to do that. So you think about this, you know, your weekly calendar is this mason jar and you if you put the rocks in first and then you put in the pebbles and then you put in the sand, you know, the pebble fills in the cracks between the rocks and the sand fills in the cracks between the pebbles. And you can actually get all these things into the jar. But if you start with the sand and then the pebbles, all of a sudden, how are you going to squeeze the rocks into the jar? I love that insight from Taylor and that mason jar metaphor. And here's some more ideas on productivity from the author of Deep Work, Cal Newport. So the reality of, of creative production sometimes is it's very workmanlike. You've got to put in the hours, and the hours are often you're sitting there thinking intensely or you're sitting there writing, and it's just hard to craft what you're trying to do. I guess it was Chuck Close who said inspiration is for amateurs. It's absolutely true. Focus as hard as you can, rack up the hours, repeat, good things come out of it. One of the things that's sort of having a renaissance in our generation is this walking it's sort of being presented as like this novel concept. How did you stumble onto this most natural of <laughs> behaviors? 
Yeah, I discovered this thing called walking. I don't know if you know about this hack that I invented. Yeah, I'm a big walking proponent because it has just worked for me. I mean, probably the way I was exposed to it is when I was in sort of grad school and a postdoc. My wife and I always lived in apartments that were kind of just a little bit too inconveniently far from things for it to be easy to get around. So we spent a lot of time walking. So I just was always, always walking and I had better thinking happen. I had better insights, had better thinking. And I found the more I controlled my thinking during the walks, it's what I called in, in the deep work book, productive meditation, that if I, instead of just letting my thinking go, if I controlled it and said, Hey, let me use this. I'm going to think about X. I'm going to think about Y that it turned out to be like cognitive calisthenics. Then it started to really improve my ability to think. And, and so now I started thinking about walking with a set thought that I stick to is sort of the mental equivalent of I'm going to, you know, stop and do 15 pull-ups or I'm going to go to the gym. And so walking has been at the core of my sort of intellectual fitness routine, I guess we could call it for a decade now. In some ways, it seems like there is this theme in your work that sort of getting back to these things that are more timeless. And because in some ways, technology is affecting the way we think so much that they're even more valuable today than they've been in the past. Yeah, I think this is true. The reason I do is not that I don't like the technologies. I mean, I'm a computer scientist. I mean, my job is to explore and advance technologies. But something that seems to be true throughout the history of technology is that when you have big revolutions or big jumps in the technologies, there's usually these early waves where they sweep over the society in very powerful new behaviors and habits and strategies that almost always evolve into something more sophisticated down the line. Our first encounter with powerful new technologies is often uncertain and disruptive, and it takes a lot of self-reflection and thinking to try to then move forward and say, okay, but how do we really want to use these technologies? In other words, we never really get it right the first time around. What do you think we're getting wrong here? Well, I think there's two major things that I think we're getting wrong. At least it's just my conjecture. The first is in the workplace. I mean, essentially what happened is during the 80s and early 90s, there was an IT revolution in the back office. So we had digital computer networks. We had very robust database systems. This all became cheaper because microprocessors were getting very powerful. And so we got a revolution in the back office. We could now put information in our business in a database, and we could connect these databases with high-speed computer networks, and we can move information around faster. And now you could book an airline ticket from a website. So I think what happened was is we took this idea that worked well for back office information and systems. Let's connect things, more connections better, faster connection is better, moving information is better. And we grafted it onto people and said people should be like IT systems and very connected. And what happens is it doesn't work so well. The human brain is not like a computer. The problem is, is if you have the human brain doing all the connection, all the emails, all the slack, all the time, it can't do the main thing that it's supposed to do, which is to think hard about the information and produce new value. So that's one thing I think we're getting wrong is this idea that people should act like human network routers. More connectivity, more information is not by default better when you're talking about humans trying to actually sit there and use their brain to create new value. This week's podcast is sponsored by Refund Retriever. If your business uses FedEx or UPS, they're definitely worth checking out. Because if you ship that way, you're going to know that a lot of these companies guarantee that if your package doesn't arrive on time, that they'll give you full credit on their charges. But the reality is that FedEx or UPS doesn't automatically do that. And that's where Refund Retriever comes in. It'll audit your invoices for late deliveries and other billing mistakes that you may not have noticed. Refund Retriever will then directly liaise with FedEx or UPS to make sure that they issue you a full credit. And here's the best part. 
their fee comes out of the actual savings they make for you. So you only pay when Refund Retriever performs. So no refund, no fee. So go check it out. What do you have to lose? And a big thanks to Refund Retriever for sponsoring the show. The fourth stage of entrepreneurship is understanding however well we organize our time, we just don't have enough. Meaning there's just not enough hours in the day to manage your personal life, to manage your new baby, to manage your business. You got to hire somebody eventually. So for everyone, including Kiri Masters, who's been on this show, you have to figure out how to hire your people. And her people are stay-at-home moms. And this year, we talked to some of her people to hear how they get it all done. Yeah, I think that there are some really good business reasons to hire moms. And I just found that moms are, this is all generalizations, but generally very organized and know how to prioritize things. It was something that I even observed in the corporate workplace was that the moms came in, they got their stuff done, and they were just laser focused because they wanted to come in at nine and leave at five. And so they didn't waste time mucking around or, you know, getting distracted. That's one good reason. And then I guess another good reason that I've personally experienced is that if you have a service or a product that's anything consumer related, the stats change over time, but mums are responsible for two thirds of household purchasing decisions. So for me, as someone that runs an agency trying to sell to represent brands on Amazon, it's really helpful to have people representing those brands who would generally buy those products themselves. So my name is Louise Gray, and I am a project manager for an e-commerce marketing company called Bobsled Marketing. Now, Luis was working at a publishing company where she met her future husband. Eventually, they moved to San Diego together. And to cut a long story short, Luis had transitioned out of publishing into project management where she worked at Sony when she became pregnant with their first child, who's now coming up on two years old. I worked until the end of my pregnancy and had anticipated going back to Sony and negotiated that possibility with my boss. But I kind of had a sneaky suspicion deep down inside that once the baby would arrive, I would have to make a completely different decision. And that's what happened. He arrived. And four months later, when I was due to go back, I didn't feel comfortable going back at that commitment level, 30 to 40 hours a week. It was much more close to 40 with a 40 minute commute on either side. It just didn't it didn't settle with me when that time came. I hadn't been exposed to children very much in my life, so I couldn't really tell you what a four-month-old looked like or what a four-month-old could do. And when my four-month was in front of me, he didn't seem to be the baby that I wanted to leave in somebody else's care for the best part of every day, five days a week. And when you don't have to do that, and that's the feeling that you have, it's quite overpowering. In a lot of ways, the values kind of align in that Mums value the same thing that we as location independent business owners do. We value flexibility. We value results over hours worked. So they're not necessarily interested in traveling or things like that. They're interested in getting results on their own schedule. And I still find it incredibly cool that I can take my break that before I would just go and sit and chat with a buddy, you know, two doors down. I can run laundry on my water cooler break. 
I think that's pretty cool, I have to say. And it, it is nice not to get in the car. I don't like driving. So to not have to get in the car, to not have to put on uncomfortable clothes, <laughs> and to also make your breaks productive and make your work time productive, so novel. I still think it's kind of cool. The fifth stage of entrepreneurship for this holiday season is realizing that you have to make hard decisions about the people that you've surrounded yourself with in your business. And that's exactly what happened with Ben and Merrill, who founded the Bean Ninjas, an online bookkeeping company together. And they have so much respect for each other. And I have so much respect for them coming onto this show and sharing their decision to basically break up and have Merrill continue running the Bean Ninjas solo. It wasn't overnight. <laughs> Let's break up. So the initial phone call, I just told Ben how I was feeling and that I think we should consider one of us buying the other out. And it was a, over a period of time that we then worked through these issues and thought about whether they could be resolved. And that was where I thought that we had a difference in vision and in how quickly we wanted to grow the business. In my head, I think I felt like I, I did want to run things and I felt restricted in the way that that things were going but I also didn't want to dive into anything so I was open to hearing Ben's perspective as well before we made a final decision. I think it was hard we'd been working on this for so long and it was having great success and I enjoyed working with the team and the type of clients that were coming through were my people online businesses so it was hard thinking of saying goodbye to that. I would have swings between being extremely excited about what I could do next and I'd still get flashes of resentment and like the negative feelings that led to the partnership split. I mean, it makes me sound completely unstable, but I think it's it's useful for people to expect that sort of thing if their partnership is going to split up. Tell me a little bit about resentment because that's the first time I've heard you say that word. What were you resentful about? I think... Dan Norris recently sold WP Curve, and so he's been talking about the why behind that. And one of the things he mentioned was a problem for him was that his business partner was in a completely other country, and they didn't have much contact on an ongoing basis. And I think Meryl and I suffered from that as well. I think being around each other a lot more would have kept us more on the same page. We sort of filled in the blanks with who we hoped the other person would be, like a clone of ourselves. And so every now and then one or the other of us would get quite annoyed that the other person didn't do something the way they would have. You know, Meryl and I have talked about this. It happened a little bit for both of us. Actually, the negotiation process was pretty good. I mean, there are a couple of points where we agreed on something and then one or the other of us thought about it and then came back and said, well, no, actually, I'm not happy with that point. So it wasn't completely smooth sailing, but it was very civil and we were both negotiable. The sixth stage of the entrepreneurial journey, let's call this one owning your mistakes. I never apologize, Lisa. I'm sorry, but that's just the way I am. So you've been in the game for more than a few years and you realize that certain decisions you made in your younger and greener days are now starting to haunt you. Don't. I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, for a very long time. Well, look, our mistakes pile is absolutely overflowing, boss man. We, it's impressive. <laughs> it's impressive. And this is the case. I think at the end of the day, you're going to get more things wrong 
then ultimately that you get right. The few things that you get right, you stick with and you improve on, and you recognize that you're going to get a lot of things wrong and there's opportunities to improve there. For us, we've been thinking specifically about renaming this pod for a long time, and it was this year that we sought out advice from the amazing Alexandra Watkins, a naming expert and the author of the book, Hello, My Name is Awesome. Tell me where it hurts with your name. Oh, geez. It hurts real bad. Well, this is a good question maybe for you is producer Jane reached out and she said, these guys over at the Tropical MBA want to talk to you. What was your first reaction? I thought it Tropical and MBA don't seem compatible to me. It seemed like get your MBA while, you know, drinking daiquiris in Grand Cayman. And really, like, it did not sound serious. It sounded like a diploma mill, kind of. Tropical, I think vacation, MBA, I think, you know, Stanford, Harbor, you know, some like really prestigious place where you go to get your MBA. And I had a complete disconnect. Brutal. Yep. It's horrible. But you came on anyways, <laughs> which is the good news for us. Thanks for coming on the show. If I look at the scratch test, it's annoying. It's mysterious. It's limiting. Those are the ones that really jump out at me. You know, I look at brands like Dave Ramsey's show about finance, some of the great entrepreneurship brands out there. And we feel like, you know, like Startup, for example, the Gimlet podcast. And we feel like our show should be considered next to theirs, but our brand doesn't really do this that service. One of the things that I thought was helpful was you created this sample brief. And so basically what it does is it forces you to write down exactly what your company does and exactly how people perceive your brand. And I think that's a helpful experiment for us. I filled one out already. Oh, yeah. you guys both did? <laughs> yeah. We did, yeah. I want to jump in here real quick just to explain the sample brief. It's simply one of the exercises that Alexandra talks about in her book. And part of the reason it's important and why we found it useful is it creates a process out of something that's otherwise mysterious or where our process used to be go to namecheap.com or whatever and start typing around. The sample brief gives you an opportunity to articulate what your brand's really all about in a systematic way. You recommend that people don't just start brainstorming. You recommend... Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's really important that you figure out what is the personality that you want to communicate in your name. Like, Eat My Words is a very fun and playful personality, where if we were called, you know, strategic name development, that's a very, <laughs> you know, serious, not so creative name for a naming firm. So I would say you want to know, you know, what's your tone and personality, what do you want the name to communicate? You cannot have your name. Everybody always writes, you know, trust. And look, your name can't communicate trust. Would you buy a car from trusty Sid, you know, use cars? No, you can communicate trust by having a, a really well-designed website and customer testimonials, but don't try to squeeze it into your name. Your name should just evoke something positive about your brand. But also I tell people, write down some words that you might want in your name. There's probably a lot of people that they're running their names through the scratch test right now. And it's like, oh, man, I have a crappy name. And I could maybe I'm missing out on opportunities. So what's your kind of litmus test on whether or not a company should go through this process? Because like Ian and I, you know, we're worried it's it's expensive. It's how is it expensive for you guys? How? I, I'm baffled by that. Do you have to reprint business cards and letterheads <laughs> and, and change the sign on your skyscraper? 
No, I think that when we say expensive, I think that there's social and business capital wrapped up in changing the name, right? It's it's hard to educate people on a new name, wouldn't you say? I think it's a great opportunity. for, And you can also be a little self-deprecating. You guys are funny. Use it to your advantage. Boss man, it's good to know that uh, Alexandra at least thought we were funny. Mm. I appreciate that. Still haven't pulled that trigger. What are the Vegas odds on renaming the pod in 2018? Talk about mistakes, bringing it up on the show. Big one. <laughs> now we're accountable. We're accountable. Ah, let's move on to the seventh stage of entrepreneurship. The realization that you need to remember why you became an entrepreneur in the first place. You know, I found over the years, most of us aren't here because we're money motivated. We're actually freedom motivated. Yeah, obviously the money buys the freedom. Well, it can do the opposite too, can it? Yep. It can box you in. It can make you less free if you're not careful. You can become a slave to it. One of the ways you can become a, a slave to the money is if you've built a big, successful business and it basically becomes that job that you tried to escape so many years ago, maybe even more stressful. Yep. And you've got to figure out a way to get out of that situation. We've been in that situation before. Luckily, we were able to accomplish that through a lot of great hires, but it's not always that easy. Yeah, when you get in that situation, Ian, people can be pressuring you to grow your business, to maybe take on investors, to take it to the quote, next level. And that's fine if those are your priorities. And this is rarefied air and high value problems that not a lot of people talk about publicly. So it's so cool when Greg Barry, the founder of Municiped, which is a seven-figure software company run out of Philadelphia, came on the show and shared some of his insights about reaching that level of success that so many of us aspire to achieve. The question that I have now is, how much are we going to mash on the gas pedal? Do we grow as we continue are, which is phenomenal growth for our company? Or do we want to try to hit it big and 10 exit in five years? But I know what kind of stress and you know involvement on my end and that's going to take. Or, quite frankly, whether or not I'm capable of growing to eight figures and you know what that looks like you know that's some things that i'm wrestling with so just to sketch it out like because i'm still thinking through all this stuff it's like the basic idea of what i've seen is like if you can create a marketplace of hungry buyers for your business this is like a different conversation a different skill set like if there are people that are like threatened by municipid and there's multiple people that are threatened and i'm threatened by so and so getting municipid now all of a sudden it's a totally different conversation than someone knocking on your door and saying I'm the mergers and acquisitions guy from so-and-so hot company. I'm going to look good if I like basically flay you guys and bring you in. And so of course you're going to, you know, nine out of 10 entrepreneurs are going to listen to that hot M&A person because it's like, well, maybe they're going to put a check on my table. My default answer is no to that. 100%. So if you can create a hot marketplace of buyers, go for it. Like that's completely different. And generally speaking, that's going to happen whether you've got a hot technology kind of thing, if you're below the 10 million mark, or if you're over the 10 million revenue mark, people are going to want to acquire your brand. They're going to bring you in just for revenue or whatever. Like that's sort of the sweet spot is 10 million plus. But then you got what a lot of our listeners in a situation in the middle where you've done something great. You've built yourself a potential retirement and a wonderful company and the deals aren't there. The enemy is really like boredom and mindset because it's like, man, now I've got this great thing going, but I still have to spend 10 hours a week on it or 20 hours a week, or I go on vacation, I come back, and I got to like sort out this shit with my director of operations is mad about something. And But it's this magical thing that took you a decade to build, and it's so tempting to leave it for just emotional reasons. 
And now the challenge is, is, well, how can you reset your mindset or how can you take on the new challenge of creating a hungry market of buyers or getting it to eight figures or finding ways to make it fun again? Well, I think you said it. Mindset is the biggest thing right now and trying to really be real with myself with what I want to do. It's like what got us to seven figures is not what's going to get us to, to eight figures. We may need to acquire companies to do that. And really, what are we optimizing for at that point? Are we optimizing for an acquisition once we hit eight figures? Are we going to get to eight figures and, and shoot for nine, you know, or whatever? And <laughs> I do think there's opportunity out there for us to grow to that size. But whether or not one, I want to do it. And two, whether I'm capable of doing it or not, I don't know. Yeah, some big thoughts from Greg there to end our seven stages of entrepreneurship. You know, opens up the question, what's the eighth stage? <laughs> it's like, it never really ends, you know? There's a lot, yeah. In some ways, you think that you're going to get to a certain level, Ian, and that it's going to be book closed, freedom achieved. That's not how life works. No, and I think that's obviously why we're all in this, is because we're always learning, it's always changing, and it's exciting. And because we can't get out of it, we're stuck. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that too. We would love to hear your thoughts. As always, whatever you're doing this holiday season, we hope it's magical. Let us know your comments. If you want to check out all the links to everything mentioned on this episode, it's going to be at tropicalmba.com slash seven stages. And as a minor gift, I mean, hesitate to call it a gift that we are going to put some of the outtakes from 2017 at the end of this show, it's it's almost like getting a stocking full of coal. It's a horrible <laughs> yeah, gift. Not that great of a gift. But <laughs> we've left it there like a flaming bag on your porch. <laughs> Thank you. We hope you have a great holiday season. And we will be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. All right, you ready? Go. Harrison, cut out the last part where I said that's exactly how I got into it. Because that's not exactly how I got into it. So cut that out. That ain't right. That's a lie. That's fake news. Fake cut, news. Cut, cut that out. Freedom. Don't put that in there, Harrison. <laughs> what might be the most impressive for me about the podcast that you're going to hear is that Jesse deprived himself of water for five days before he did it. I couldn't... Not water. Food. Was it just food? Well, he'd die if it was water. I thought he was on a water fest. That means you drink water. Oh, okay. I was supposed to be riding my bike, but I crashed it this weekend, speaking of midlife and mortality. Oh. So I only have one hand that I can currently use. Unfortunately, my microphone fits well in just one. Good thing you're not a rapper. Yeah, because a lot of times it's two hands on the mic. Hey, Arison, uh, this is uh, going to come as a big surprise, but it would be really nice to have some 
shower noises during this episode, if we can swing that. The artiste speaking. Yes. This is my contribution. Like your grand creative vision. <laughs> I like to hear, I like to hear some, uh, some people slipping in the shower. I think it would be kind of funny, just like, whoop. Here's some of that. Here's some rain shower noises. Here's the shower. A waterfall. Like turning on, you know, the little. <laughs> if we can find it. Be nice. All right. <laughs> I don't think it's a bad thing to lead with travel, but I do think that it's a little bit misleading based on what we're talking about. How did about you pronounce days. it, by the way? Because how did you say tropical? <laughs> tropical? <laughs> hold up a second. Hold up a second. Did, did something bad just happen in your life? What you, hold on a second. Trish, I'm recording, and she just she just <laughs> let the cat in here. You're not allowed to do that, Trish. You this gotta is get against the, the law of the podcast. <laughs> I'm on the record right now. She opened the door and put the cat in the room. I'm like, what universe am I living in right now? <laughs> okay, she, she's pregnant. All right. All right. <laughs> Great interview, man. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for... Uh, <laughs> Come on, dude. You can't, you can't close it like that.